This is an ABC podcast. For several years now, there's been growing buzz around the use of psychedelics to treat mental health issues. It's been dubbed the psychedelic renaissance and promises new ways of tackling illnesses like depression and anxiety, using a little bit of psychedelic substance and a lot of psychotherapy. This year, several large research trials have published results on the efficacy of these drugs. And there are plenty more studies in the pipeline, including work here in Australia. I'm Sana Kadar, and for this episode of All in the Mind, we've been looking at the latest research in this space. And producer James Bullen has been sifting through the papers and analysing the results. Hi, James. Hi, Sana. Yeah, I wanted to kick things off with one of the major areas of promise for the use of psychedelics, which is in post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Dr. Rick Doblin is the founder and director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, in the United States. He's also the senior author on a paper published in Nature Medicine earlier this year, a phase three trial looking at the use of MDMA, sometimes known as ecstasy, to treat severe PTSD. And he recently presented at Mind Medicine Australia's International Summit for Psychedelic Therapies. Phase three is reasonably far down the clinical trial pipeline. It means the treatment has been shown to be relatively safe and that it has some effect. In phase three, it's tested on larger numbers of people and often measured up against existing treatments. Rick begins by telling me that this so-called psychedelic renaissance, the renewed research interest in psychedelic treatments over the past two decades, continues to grow. Now there's about four or five times as many papers published as there were at the peak of the 1960s, the end of the 60s, early 70s. So way more science. So that's one indication of the psychedelic renaissance. The other indication is that there are now about 400 or so for-profit psychedelic companies that have started. And in the last two years, MAPS has raised about $50 million, but the for-profits have raised about a billion and a half. So an enormous amount of money going in there. Another example of the psychedelic renaissance is that MAPS is, of all these 400 companies or so, we're the only one in phase three. But we are in phase three. And there are multiple psilocybin companies that are in phase two getting close to going into phase three. So we're further along. Not only is there more research, but we're further along in the research. And against that backdrop, one of the most recent and significant pieces of research was one that you and colleagues published in Nature Medicine, and that was this phase three trial for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. Can you tell me about the people in that trial? What sort of trauma did they have and how long did they have it typically? Many studies of PTSD exclude people if they have previously attempted to kill themselves. And we felt that we had to work with the hardest cases. So we do not exclude people if they've previously attempted to kill themselves. And many of the subjects in our study had done so. So we have severe as the cutoff. The first phase three study was only severe PTSD. On average, people had PTSD over uh, 14 years. And we had one third of the people had PTSD for over 20 years. You know, some of the veterans had it more recently. So they drove down the averages, but also... Almost all these people had tried either medications or psychotherapy or both and had failed on those, still had severe PTSD. 
We also enrolled people that are from what are often considered to be the hardest group to treat, which is the dissociative subtype. So what that means is that a common strategy when you're being traumatized is to sort of separate, to dissociate. You're not really there. It's not really happening to you. But because the pain, emotional and physical pain can be so great, then it gets hard for people who are dissociated to get back and to really process the trauma. They always have a sense it's overwhelming. They can't handle it. And so when you're dissociated, you can't really process the trauma. So we enroll people with a dissociative subtype. And roughly two-thirds of the people in our studies were women. Most of the attention in the media gets to the veterans, at least in America. But it's really women, mostly, that suffer from PTSD, from sexual assault, childhood sexual abuse, adult rape and assault, domestic violence. In America, sadly, we have a situation where a lot of people go to schools and shoot up and kill people. So we had several people that were traumatized from being in schools when people were killed. And why might MDMA help with PTSD in particular? I think MDMA is ideal for deeper work because it reduces the activity in the left amygdala, which is where we process fear. And so you're able to recall fearful memories without such fear so that you can look at it, you can process it, you can let out the emotions. MDMA also releases oxytocin, which is a hormone of love, connection, nursing mothers, so that Another part of PTSD is that you feel really isolated from people. You don't trust people. You withdraw more and you're isolated. So MDMA can help people feel more connected. It gives a sense of self-acceptance so people can feel sometimes there's a lot of shame and guilt from having been traumatized so they can address that. MDMA also increases connectivity between the amygdala and the hippocampus where we put memories into long-term storage in the hippocampus so that you know, memories get sort of stuck. They're not put in as memories. For PTSD, it's like it's still happening or it could happen any second. So MDMA helps people process and store traumatic memories into long-term storage. But I should say that it's really the therapy context. So it's not like here's a pill and now you're going to be fine. People can take MDMA and be worse off if they don't feel safe. If the memory of the trauma comes and they think they have to suppress it because they're out with friends at a party and friends only want to party or so it's the therapy that's really the key therapeutic ingredient. And then the MDMA fundamentally helps the therapy be more effective. But it's context-driven. It's not just here's a pill like pharma and take it for the rest of your life every day. So we only give people MDMA three times. And I did want to ask about the protocol of the treatment. Uh, as you say, it's three sessions or three doses. Yeah, it's, it's three eight-hour MDMA sessions. They start at 10 in the morning, end around 6 in the evening. Often we have people do overnight stays at the clinic because there's 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions as well, three before the first MDMA session as preparation and to build the therapeutic alliance with the therapist. And so there's three of these 90-minute MDMA non-drug sessions after each MDMA session for integration. So there's 12 of these 90-minute sessions. There's three eight-hour sessions. It's 42 hours of therapy over about three and a half months with a two-person therapy team. Right. And, and when you say integration, that's taking in what you may have discovered or learnt during a session with a therapist and working it back into your understanding of the world? Reflecting on what experiences you had during the MDMA experience, but also deepening them and broadening them. And so a lot of times you may have 
raised a bunch of issues and feelings during this MDMA session, and then you continue to process it afterwards. So it's kind of anchoring it. So the integration is key. I'd say the integration is something that makes it more durable and more permanent than just it happened during an MDMA experience, and then you go on to think about other things. So the integration is how do you bring back from the experience into your daily life to increase your baseline? so that now you're more peaceful, you're more open, you're not as overwhelmed. So the integration is the key part, and it's what fundamentally separates recreational use, where you're just doing it for the experience, the therapeutic use, where you're trying to bring back from the therapy session to change your baseline. And so coming to findings, when you compared those who received the MDMA therapy versus those who got a placebo, what sort of effects did you see and differences between them? When you add MDMA to the therapy, 67%, more than twice as much, no longer had PTSD at the two-month follow-up, more than double the control group. And of the one-third of people that still had PTSD, most of them had what's called clinically significant reductions of PTSD symptoms. So that, for example, if we could have given them a fourth MDMA session, or if they would have just waited a couple months, because we see that people learn how to heal themselves and they get better after the therapy is over. So we're going to do a one-year follow-up as well. And we anticipate that at the one-year follow-up, we'll see more than two-thirds no longer have PTSD. And that's what we saw in phase two. We had 56% at the two-month follow-up no longer had PTSD with therapy plus MDMA. And at the one-year follow-up, it was 67%. So we shall see. We don't know yet, but we anticipate that at the one-year follow, it will be even better than two-thirds. As you mentioned earlier, I was really interested about the effect on people with the dissociative subtype. Why might it be particularly effective for that group where other treatments haven't been? Yeah, what MTMA does is it takes this fear away from those memories that you're disassociated from so that you could process them. And they particularly need that. So we showed that the people on the dissociative subtype on average, had more benefit than those people that weren't on the dissociative side. It worked better in the hardest cases because I think they're so in need of this kind of way out of this trauma that they're in, and it's always too painful. So I think that the same way that MDMA is effective for all the other people in the study, the dissociative subtype people have this coping strategy that's basically counterproductive. So when you're being traumatized, to be dissociated can be a good way out. And so the MDMA is a very profound corrective experience for people who have this dysfunctional strategy for dealing with trauma. And so that's why I think they need it so much. That's why it helps them so much. What happens next and how does the FDA fit in? Because I think there's another phase three trial underway at the moment. There's another phase three underway. The study will be done in October of 2022. Then we take a month or so to analyze the data. We submit it to the FDA. And we think before the end of 2023, we should have approval for prescription use of MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD in the United States. We're close to working with researchers in Australia to start MDMA PTSD research in Australia. And we're going to be negotiating with the TGA. The TGA actually could potentially approve MDMA in Australia before the FDA does because they have a shorter timeline for review. So once we have the data from the second phase three study, we will also apply to the TGA and we will see. So I think before the end of 2023, there's a very good chance Australia will also approve prescription use of MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD.
that's Dr. Rick Doblin, founder and director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies in the United States and senior author on that Nature Medicine paper. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. And today, producer James Bullen looks at some of the latest research into the use of psychedelics for the treatment of mental health issues. Another area where psychedelics seem to have promise is in the treatment of anxiety and depression. Professor David Nutt is a neuropsychopharmacologist at Imperial College London who researches how drugs like MDMA and psilocybin, which is the active component in magic mushrooms, affect the brain. In a paper published this year in the New England Journal of Medicine, David and his team compared psilocybin-assisted therapy against the antidepressant medication escitalopram, which you might also know by its brand names Lexapro or Esopram. Here's what they did and how the treatments measured up. We believe that these two medicines work in very different ways, and we conducted some quite sophisticated brain imaging studies during the course of the treatment for both groups, which showed, or at least supported our hypothesis, that the mode of action is different. Essentially, we're testing a theory that psilocybin reframes cortical processes, and people see their depression differently and and develop ways of overcoming it. Whereas escitalopram, we believe, works in the limbic system to dampen down the stress response and therefore encourage people to heal from their depression, but in a very different time course to that of psilocybin. But the secondary measure, which was the clinical outcome, was also very interesting because, of course, we want to correlate the imaging studies or the imaging data with the clinical outcome. And I think people might be surprised to learn that you actually gave a very small dose of psilocybin to the people who received antidepressants as well. Why did you do that? Yes, doing a head-to-head comparison or even a placebo comparison with psilocybin is very challenging because people tend to know when they have a big dose, they have a trip. And also the processes around psilocybin administration are really quite sophisticated. There's a we have in our studies two therapists, we call them guides. There's a preparatory day or two, then there's the session itself. And then there's the, the debriefing, what we call integration sessions afterwards. So there's a lot of psychotherapy around the drug administration. In order to get what we call clinical equipoise, to make sure that both groups were getting the same amount of everything apart from the drug, we had to do the same with the escitalopram group. So what we did was we gave them a one milligram dose of psilocybin but with all the psychotherapy that they would have gotten if they had a 25 milligram dose. Even though most of them realized they hadn't had a full dose, they did get a lot of benefit from that interaction with the therapist and the chance to talk in detail about their past and their future, et cetera. And when you compared these groups after the treatment course, what did you find? Most of the measures, psilocybin was better than esoteropramine in measures of uh, what we call remission, the number of people getting really well, often twice as many got fully remitted on the psilocybin than on the escitalopram. And measures of side effects, et cetera, there was some benefit for psilocybin. And you touched on this earlier, but what is our understanding of what's happening in these people when they take psilocybin and see these improvements? How is it working to help improve their mood? I think it's important to say that this particular line of research is what we call translational medicine. When I started studying psilocybin in the brain nearly 15 years ago, the question I was asking was, what is a psychedelic experience? Why are psychedelics psychedelics? We discovered that the uh, psychedelic experience is associated with a very profound disorganization 
of electrical activity in the brain. The brain becomes very much less organized in the way the brain waves perpetuate and work through the brain. We discovered also that the circuits of the brain, some of the circuits in one of the regions of the brain, which we knew from other people's work to be intimately involved in depression, were either down-regulated or disrupted by psilocybin. And so we wondered, therefore, if psilocybin would be an antidepressant, because if you disrupt depression-causing circuits, then maybe you would lift depression. And that's what we find. We find that psilocybin produces a profound disruption of a network in the brain, which encodes self-referential thinking. We call it the default mode network. And that's the network in which depressed people get locked into thinking negative thoughts about themselves. They ruminate about mistakes they've made. They have these repetitive self-critical appraisals of themselves. We can disrupt that. And then for a period of a few hours during the trip, they're free from those thoughts. But much more importantly is when they come out of the trip, they can somehow reset their minds so that they don't get locked into that pattern again. They can think differently. They can think much more positively. They can construct new ways of, of dealing with their life and their past problems. And when you look forward to the next couple of years in terms of research and progress in this space, what are you looking forward to and, and what do you expect in terms of changes? Well, we're now on the cusp of a very big wave of research in psychedelics and also to some extent MDMA. So this is potentially a paradigm shift in psychiatry. And many companies are now in this field. Some people are making derivatives of psilocybin, novel derivatives, which they think will be patentable and may therefore give them a commercial advantage. And myself, I'm actually interested in trying to understand how MDMA works, because although it's been around for nearly 50 years, because it was illegal, there's been no systematic research into why it's different from similar looking drugs like methamphetamine. And Everyone knows that MDMA and methamphetamine are fundamentally different, but at the chemical and pharmacological level, it's not at all clear why that should be. So I'm trying to um, see if we can even improve on MDMA as a therapy. Professor David Nutt from Imperial College London. He was also a presenter at the Mind Medicine Australia Summit last month. And back home in Australia, there's also been growing research attention given to psychedelics for mental health. I wanted to check in with Dr. Margaret Ross, Senior Clinical Psychologist at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. She's the Chief Principal Investigator of Australia's first psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy study to treat depression and anxiety in people who have a terminal illness, like certain cancers. I think a big part of what we do in the cancer and palliative care spaces is specifically focus on people's adjustment to their illness and also then, you know, if they're in palliative care, adjusting to the idea of dying, which is no small psychological event. You know, I often say to people when you lose one person in your life, that's that's hard enough, you know, that's devastating enough. But for the person who is at the end of their life, they have to square with saying goodbye to every single person in their life, every role they've ever inhabited, every experience that makes them feel full of life and and the things that they love, and that's a big goodbye. So that can be very, very difficult. And just even coping with the effects of the illness as their illness progresses, you know, it can leave them, you know, increasingly dependent on other people. Their body starts to betray them in, in this way where they're deteriorating in their their health and their ability and their level of functioning. And 
it can have a massive assault on one's sense of identity as a result of that. So really, you know, as a psychologist, you know, our role is to help people, you know, talk through that and help them come to terms with, with what they're facing. And what sort of existing treatments or therapies are there for, for people with a terminal illness who might also, as you say, have anxiety or have depression? So at the moment, treatment for distress at end of life really roughly falls into two categories. You have things like medications, so like antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. On the other hand, you have like talking therapies and creative therapies, like art therapy or music therapy. Both of them have their limitations. Both of them can be very good. Um, there are people that will respond to talking therapies or they will respond to an antidepressant or course of antidepressants or a combination of both. But then there are many who don't. Uh, and I think it's from that juncture whereby we wanted to try and look at for, you know, emerging treatments in the space. And we saw that psychedelic-assisted therapy was definitely an emerging treatment in the space with quite compelling um, preliminary findings, and we really wanted to bring it to Australia. Why is it that psychedelics and, and particularly psilocybin might help in this setting? One of the really difficult things to access when you're talking with somebody who has a crippling fear of, of dying or a despair about dying is that it's very difficult to reach just with talking therapy alone. Mm. We can access it in, in various ways. You can treat it with antidepressant or you can treat it with um, anti-anxiety, but it really kind of just numbs and puts a bit of a Band-Aid over the symptoms rather than getting to the core of what's actually going on for that person. You know, you really need to engage the rupture in order to get therapeutic repair. And one of the things that psilocybin really does is it, it you know, enables you to access that existential ache that they have in a way that nothing else really can. There's a, there's a number of ways that we at least hypothesise that psilocybin can do that, psilocybin-assisted therapy, I should say. I mean, certainly there's the, the neurological aspects of the treatment whereby the psilocybin will relax the default mode network, which is the network of brain regions that are quite active when we're at rest. And that's the same network of brain regions that seem to be active when we're engaged in self-referential thinking. So when we're thinking about ourselves in the past or when we're thinking about ourselves in the future. And in things like depression and anxiety, that self-referential thinking is usually quite negative and quite automatic. So, you know, I'm not good enough, I'm not lovable, I'm, you know, whatever. Or, you know, futuristic anxiety thinking, you know, like this is going to be terrible, it's going to be horrible, I, I can't do this, it's going to be overwhelming, it's going to be terrifying, etc. So what the psilocybin can do is sort of relax that automated rigid thinking and short circuit it enough so that it then allows for more expanded perspective. And the way that we've described it previously and a number of researchers talk about this is it's kind of a, a new perspective on old problems. So then it really allows people to kind of think about things in a, a more lateral way that you know, in ways that are not usually accessible to people in their waking state of consciousness. So then they can learn to come to terms with things like their illness, their failing body, perhaps even fractured relationships that are requiring resolution. There's some degree of resolution here that that's possible with the psilocybin state in conjunction with not only preparatory therapy, but also integration therapy, which is a key part of this. It's not just the psilocybin. I think that's important to point out. It's the psilocybin in combination with the therapy. The psilocybin really just makes that therapy work better. And I do want to ask you about, yeah, particularly the, the clinical trial that you're leading and and the design. What is the kind of protocol of treatment that people go through when they're part of this trial? One of 
the things that is really important and is, I guess, often missed when, you know, in the greater cultural dialogue about uh, psychedelics when you're applying it in this context is actually that it is a combination treatment. It's not just a psilocybin, it's therapy that goes on prior to the dose day. So people are very, you know, very carefully screened and they're very thoroughly prepared before their dose day. And then, you know, after the dose day, then there are a number of integration sessions so that people can make sense of it and derive meaning from the experiences that came up for them during their dose day. And that's the stuff that really kind of leverages the lasting changes in mood and in thinking and so forth. And now our own protocol is that we have a a very strong emphasis on the psychotherapy component, particularly at the beginning. And then obviously at at the end of that, it becomes a way of that person being able to go, okay, this was really meaningful for me in the session or this was really challenging for me and that can offer some insights to them as to how they move forward in their life. On the level of, you know, you could have a psychedelic experience and it might be, okay, it could be good, it could be bad, whatever, but the thing that actually promotes that lasting change is having good therapy prior to and then after your dose experience. I was curious because psilocybin and and psychedelic substances can be controversial or taboo depending upon your perspective (laughs) or your background. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you talk to patients about this therapy and kind of introduce the idea of, of using psilocybin in conjunction with therapy? You know, it's the funny one. I think, you know, when we first designed the study and and we first announced that, yeah, so we've got this study that we're going to be conducting and we were sort of preparing for this sort of stinging rebuke <laughs> from, from the, the greater academic and medical community as well as, you know, public uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And it just never happened. It actually went the other way. And in fact, it's gone so far the other way that there's almost a fervour about psychedelics now, um, you know, which, you know, which has its own dangers, I think, as well. But, but um, so really, actually, not a lot is needed to be said in terms of the patients being persuaded that it could be useful you know we thought that it would sort of be sort of still kind of rooted in the hangover of the you know 60s and you know the Nixon administration so-called war on drugs and and so forth and it certainly did have that counterculture tag and and some lasting stigma but but public sentiment has shifted pretty rapidly in the last few years so we're now in a situation whereby the talking that we're doing is actually very different it's about kind of relaxing expectations because something very interesting has happened and that is that um, we're now kind of putting it on a pedestal whereby it's going to be the next big thing. Yeah, this is the thing that's going to cure me and if I just take this one pill, you know, because there's there's a lot of media attention around, you know, after a single dose or after two doses, you know, you were able to achieve this. What's missing though is a hell of a lot of fine print there and that's the stuff that really does need to enter the public's understanding about what psychedelic-assisted therapy actually will require of you. And it's great. There's some really good data about the safety of it. And actually, it's much safer than people think from a you know, medical or physical point of view. But there are still risks. And the, the problem was, and if we, you know, you only have to look back at the 60s and, you know, people like Timothy Leary who were really exaggerating the benefits, but either completely omitting or downplaying the risks. And then you had the Nixon administration who were, com- you know, completely exaggerating the risks or even outright lying about the risks and downplaying the benefits. And I think we need some sensible ground here that are going to acknowledge both, particularly as there's enormous potential for this to enter psychiatry and psychology as a completely new modality of treatment. But we want to do it properly. There is always that risk that we could land back in the the dark ages of the Nixon administration where, you know, someone has moved too quickly and then there's a very swift political backlash 
which sees it rescheduled and then the, the research becomes very difficult again. So I think if we do this in a very sensible way and with good talking and sensible talking about what is actually required and not looking at it as this sort of universal panacea that's a very quick fix and I just have to take this pill or I don't have to do, even think about it, it's much more than that. And it's important that we do that sort of talking now and we need to start now. And the trial that you're leading, what stage is it currently at and when might you expect to report findings? So we took a bit of a whack with COVID, uh, of course, in 2020, uh, March 2020, it was uh, all on hold um, for the remainder of the year. So we recommenced earlier this year and we've had some you know, really very positive recruitment and so we're about halfway through. And we're hoping to have finished our recruitment around about this time next year or even, you know, maybe starting to analyse some of our data. That's Dr Margaret Ross, Senior Clinical Psychologist at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. And you also heard from Dr Rick Doblin from MAPS and Professor David Nutt from Imperial College London. Australia's Therapeutic Goods Administration, the TGA, is continuing to look at the evidence around psychedelics and whether MDMA or psilocybin should be downscheduled from a prohibited drug to a control drug. That would allow psychiatrists to use these drugs in certain circumstances alongside psychotherapy. We'll be keeping an eye out for that decision, which is due soon. That's it for All in the Mind this week. Thanks to producer James Bullen and sound engineer Anne-Marie de Betancourt. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. <laughs>